opportunities for the light of the gospel to go forward. Now, um, I want to say that as a little bit of a segue into what we are considering this morning as we pick up on our series on mission. For those of you who are with us this morning, who are guests, just to let you know that we're going through about a six-week series on the subject of the missionary task of the church. Um, the Bible teaches us that God is a missionary God and that God calls you and me together to participate in that saving and that restorative mission um, to the world. Now, what we're doing in this um, series is um, the first part of the series, so the first three sermons, what we're doing is we're setting what we call a biblical theological rationale for mission. I have found in other churches that I have served that there is rarely a buy-in from the leadership and there's rarely a buy-in from the people unless they really understand that, that mission... The mission of God and the mission of God's people gets at the very center of what the Bible is all about, and you and I cannot really truly understand and appreciate the scriptures apart from understanding that. So the last two Sundays, we've been following kind of a helicopter ride over the Old Testament. Now we're going to do a little bit of a helicopter ride over the New Testament as we come to the conclusion of this mission story that we find uh, in the Bible. And I'm going to ask you just to kind of get into this kind of frame of mind, because I said this a couple of weeks ago, that as we go through this biblical and theological framework for mission, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm following the progress of history as God more and more is revealing himself as a missionary God and you and me as a, a missionary people, okay? And so what there is in this series is there is a retelling in a sense of the story so we get that story down and I just want you to get in that kind of mindset because there's not going to be all kinds of warm applications for about the first three quarters of the sermon but there is going to be a couple of applications that I want to draw our attention to at the end so just kind of put yourself in that mind frame okay Matthew chapter 28 I want to begin um, with uh, Matthew chapter 28 beginning at verse 16 if you have a Bible that's where we're at Otherwise, we have the passage here before us on the screen. So let's draw our attention to this. Um, Jesus has risen from the dead. He is about to ascend into heaven. And before he does, he gives what is called the Great Mission Commission. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then he ends with these words, very comforting words. He says, Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Now, he's saying that to the disciples, but he's saying that to all subsequent Christians who have been given the Great Mission Commission. He's saying, as you carry out this commission, let me tell you something, you don't do this alone. But my presence goes with you, and with that presence, there is the promise of triumph. There's the promise of uh, victory. Now, we, we read from this, this passage of the Great Mission Commission, and you, you talk to uh, Christians today, they will oftentimes, when you, when you talk about the missionary task of the church, they will oftentimes connect it with this passage, and while they should, and they oftentimes think in their minds that this great mission that Jesus has given to the church begins here in Matthew chapter 28, but as we've seen throughout this series, that's not the case at all. What Jesus is doing here is he is simply carrying forward an original mission commission that he gave to the people of Israel. 
And that mission commission, if you take the Bible seriously, and you know the Bible at all, actually began not with Jesus here before his ascension, but began already in the Garden of Eden, where God promised that this world that fell into sin and rebellion and muck, he's not going to cast it away. He's not going to cast it away, but he says, I'm going I'm to save it, and I'm going to restore it by sending a savior, a redeemer, a rescuer into this world and who's going to gather around himself a reconstituted people who are going to share in that mission. Now, if you were, if you were here um, over the past um, couple of weeks, you'll, you'll remember that God promised that, again, he was not going to destroy a world that fell into sin and depravity and scarring because of the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But God promised that he was going to save and he was going to restore and he was going to bless this world by sending in time a rescuer, a redeemer, a Messiah, and God was also going to bless the world by calling together a people who we know as the nation of Israel who through them, the Messiah would come into this world, and through them, until that Messiah came into the world, would be a blessing and a light to the nations. But if you've been, been here over the last couple of weeks, and especially last Sunday, you remember this, that, that Israel was called to be a holy people, right? A, the Bible calls them a holy nation. That is, the, the people of God, our, our spiritual ancestors, were called to be set apart for the purpose of uh, set apart from all the other nations of the world, God says, I especially choose you as a people so that you might give your hearts to me, so that you might be a faithful and you might be obedient people, and so that by being a holy nation, you would bless the world as the world sees you as a different nation from all the other nations, and they're going to say, what do you have that we don't have? Why do you receive a blessing when we don't receive a blessing? But if you were here again last week, you remember that rather than being a light to the nations and rather being a holy people, and if you know anything about the first two-thirds of the Bible, the Old Testament, you know that it's not always a very happy story, is it? Is it? Because what you see with the people of God is that while God calls them to be a faithful and obedient and light to the nations, if God is here, they're over here, and they're turning their backs on God, and they're doing what the Bible calls covenant-breaking. They're breaking covenant. They're breaking this bond with God and this bond of their purpose to be a light to the nations. And God sends prophet after prophet to turn them from their ways, but they simply don't want to listen. So what God does is he says, okay, I have no other recourse but to discipline you. I'm going to condemn you, and I'm going to bring you into enslavement um, among other nations. And when you look at the Old Testament, the people of God are enslaved by nations like Assyria, and then Babylon, and then Persia, and then finally by the time that this Messiah comes, they're under the domination of the Roman Empire. So they're never really a completely free people, and they're never really being the kind of light to the nations that they're supposed to be. Which raises the question... Okay, this, this promise that God is going to send this Messiah into this world, and this promise that God is going to have his people be a light to the nations and be a blessing to the nations, what's the deal with that promise? By the time we get to the Old Testament, at the end of the Old Testament, you're kind of thinking, huh, is God a promise-keeping God or isn't he? Because it doesn't seem like it. 
But as we saw last week, always remember this, and you can bank on this also personally in your own life. When God makes a promise to you, which is yes and amen in Jesus Christ, that's the language the Bible uses, God never goes back on that promise. He may not follow your time frame or the manner in which you like him to fulfill those promises that he has given you and that he's given us as a church. But it doesn't mean that he's not going to fulfill the promise. He just does it in his time and in his way. And you know about this in your own life, that oftentimes God takes longer in fulfilling his promises to you than you oftentimes would like. We see that in the Bible too. So did God break his promise? Mm Mm-mm. Do you remember this? I did this a couple weeks ago. It's called a drumbeat. And so we call the drumbeat of God's promise of restoration. And that, that it's interesting that that, that that drumbeat that begins in the Garden of Eden begins very, kids, it begins very, it begins very soft and slow. You can hardly hear it. But as the Old Testament moves on, as the flow of history moves on, and God more and more starts to fulfill his promise, what we find in the Old Testament is that that drumbeat that begins so soft and so slow begins to grow, and it grows louder and louder, and the temple grows faster and faster and faster, and then it happens. This Messiah that Jesus promises comes into this world. He is born into this world. Literally, he was born about 2,000 years ago. And this Messiah, this deliverer, is called Yeshua, Jesus, Jesus, meaning Savior, Deliverer, Rescuer. And this Jesus is just no ordinary human individual. This Jesus is both God and man, both human and divine. Indeed, Jesus is known as God's own very son. In the Bible, he is called the son of God. So what we find is that God the Father sends in time his son to, as I said, gather for himself a people, redeem them, restore them, and reconstitute them. That is, reform them in a way that they will be different from their disobedience and faithlessness and lightlessness, if that's even a word, in among the nations. But what he does is he brings Jesus into this world to regather his people, save them from their sins, and make them the kind of people that they're supposed to be. When you look at the life of Jesus, remember what I said, is we're doing kind of a helicopter ride uh, over the New Testament. But when you look at the life of Jesus, and for some of you here who may not be very familiar with the Bible, I want you to listen, especially what you're about to hear over the next probably 10 minutes or so. This Jesus who comes into the world comes somewhat in the shadows, so to speak. He 
He he is born into this world in obscurity and also poverty. He comes for the sake of his own people, the people of Israel. But if you know anything about the Christmas story, which we're going to be celebrating a little bit over a month, you know that when Jesus came into the world, very many people even understood that the Messiah had come. Jesus grows then from birth into a small child. And then very interestingly, we see that in his teenage years and young adult years, we don't read anything in the Bible about Jesus. Did you know that? And then, and then he, he suddenly springs on the scene around age 30, and he begins a three-year public ministry. Do you remember how he begins his public ministry? Because it was really preaching what I'm doing right now. It's what, this was at the center of Jesus' ministry. And do you remember what he preached? He said, repent! For the kingdom of God is at hand. You go, what does he mean? The kingdom of God is at hand. He's simply saying, listen, that long-awaited rescuer, that uh, long-awaited authoritative king, I am that king. I am that Messiah, and I've come to bring my kingdom. In other words, I have come to bring my presence to bear upon my people and upon the world, and I have come as this great king to proclaim the good news of restoration and the salvation of the world, the salvation of my people and the salvation of the world. I've come to proclaim it, and what I've come to do is, and you remember this if you know the the New Testament story, Jesus gathered around himself 12 disciples or 12 followers who are the nucleus of that redeemed or that reformed Israel that's going to grow and be that light to the nations. You following along? So Jesus preaches the kingdom, and he tells people to enter into that kingdom, to submit to his presence, and to submit to the rule, to be transformed and be that light to the nations. And then Jesus and his disciples do something really quite fascinating that we read in the New Testament. And this is, this is kind of what strikes people when they start reading the Bible for the first time. They start learning about Jesus, and then they see him performing a number of incredible feats. We call them miracles. Jesus performs these miracles, and Jesus and his disciples both then perform these miracles. And people say, well, why did he do that? Why do we read about miracles like Jesus healing the blind, and the deaf, and the lame, and the mute? And and why is it that Jesus liberates people from demon possession? And why is it that, that at one point... Jesus, there's these tumultuous waters of the Sea of Galilee. Remember that story? And there's, there's a storm on the sea. And then he speaks peace to the waters, and the waters become peaceful. The waters are restored. And, and Jesus even goes so far to raise people from the dead. Why did he perform all those miracles? To demonstrate that he was the Son of God, that he indeed was the Messiah, that he was God himself, but also in order to show the restorative power and the saving power of the kingdom that he had come to bring, that restorative power for people, and indeed, in time, the whole of the physical creation. It's quite incredible. And you know what the Bible calls that, what I just explained to you? The Bible calls it evangelion. That's a Greek term. It it's, means gospel, means good news. When Jesus comes into this world and he brings his restorative kingdom, who can stand back and say, even if you don't necessarily believe it, you understand that, hey, that's not bad news. That's very good, good news. But you see, not everyone 
who heard the message of the kingdom and saw these miracles saw it as good news. Right? So, so Jesus comes for his own people and he demonstrates he's the king as if to say, your Messiah has come and he's come for you. And yet the Bible says he came to his own, but his own received him not. They were offended by him, the Jewish people, the people of Israel. But more than that, Jesus came, as the Bible says, to destroy the works of the evil one so that good can triumph over evil, the evil one who actually brought sin into this world by tempting Adam and Eve. Jesus says, I have come to undo you. I've come to gain victory over you. And Satan and his minions, what they try to do, Jesus came to destroy them, but they tried to destroy him. Jesus came to confront government officials. And what did they do with Jesus? You know what they did? They arrested him and put him in trial. And you know what you see in the New Testament? You see these four entities combining together to to stand against Jesus. You have the people of Israel as a whole, not all of them, but many of them. You have the religious leaders among the people of Israel called Pharisees and Sadducees. You have Satan himself and his minions, demonic powers. And then you have certain officials of the Roman government. And they all join hands, and they all say the same thing. And you know what they say? He's got to die. He must die. And so what do they do? They arrest him. They put him on trial. They condemn him. They crucify him. They drive nails into his hands and his feet, and later on a Roman centurion Soldier takes a spear and throws it into his side, and they kill him. And then what do they do? They bury him. They put him in a tomb, and they put this large rock over that tomb, and that tomb is shut, and there you find the dead body of the Messiah. And everything is dark. And everybody thinks, well, this is the last chapter. I guess God is not fulfilling his promise after all. I guess God is a liar. And then it happens. And you cannot understand and you cannot uh, appreciate the Bible. And you cannot understand the meaning of the word hope without understanding this. It happens. You say, what happened? What happened is after three days in the tomb and three nights in the tomb, Jesus does what no human being has ever done before. He rises from the dead, never to die again. And people are incredulous, and they're, and they're like, what, the tomb is empty? And there are a lot of people who are saying, well, listen, somebody must have stole the body. They must have rolled the, the stone away, and somebody must have stole the body. And many people doubted. In fact, Jesus' own disciples, they all doubted, even though Jesus said, I'm going to rise from the dead. They didn't believe it, and they had to be convinced. So you know what Jesus did after he rose from the dead in order to demonstrate that he was alive and his body was not stolen? He preached the kingdom of God. He kept going back to his preaching ministry, but he also demonstrated to people around him that he indeed had risen from the dead by speaking to them, by eating before them, by showing them, demonstrating to them he was not dead, but he was very much alive. So Jesus appeared to women, Jesus appeared to his disciples, and then the Bible says in the great resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Jesus revealed himself, showed himself to be alive to over 500 people at one time. Again, 
to say to the world, I am not dead, I'm very much alive. And then after that, Jesus, after doing this for 40 days, ascended into heaven. And that's a significant thing, because when he ascended into heaven, he was saying to the world, I have accomplished my purpose, and now I'm going to be seated at the right hand of my Father, full of glory and power, and I will be proclaimed the Lord of lords and the King of kings. But before he did that, and A.V., I'm going to have you put up a passage now. Before he did that, he assembled his disciples together. And this is what he said to them. Pay close to those, uh, attention to those words. He said, It is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead. Now notice this, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, where? To all nations. Or to whom? To all nations. Beginning, he says, this proclamation to the nations to repent and believe is going to begin in Jerusalem. Now remember that. It's going to begin in Jerusalem. It's the, the capital of God's people. He says, you're witness of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father to you. But stay in the city, that is the city of Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. Now notice what he says. He says, I'm sending you what? Operative word. The promise. The promise of what? The promise of power. You say, what power is he talking about? He's talking about a power that on a number of occasions in the first two-thirds of the Bible, God promised would come upon his people that would empower them in time to be the kind of people that they're supposed to be. A holy people, a faithful people, and a people who are going to be a light to the nations. That power is known as the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit. So Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to start wrapping up this story now. Jesus says to his disciples, remember, I want you to go to Jerusalem. And this is what I want you to do. I just want you to wait. That's what he says. I want you to wait. So they go to Jerusalem and they wait. Now remember, they're waiting for what? Once again, they're waiting for God to fulfill a promise. And it must have been for a while they're wondering, is he going to fulfill that promise? So what do they do? They pray. Okay, they pray for the fulfillment of that promise. So they pray, and they pray, and they wait, and they wait. And then ten days later, a week and a half later, what happens? Jesus pours forth his spirit upon his disciples and among other believers. At that time, 100 in all. So now you have that nucleus that God is reforming among his people that he, they may be a light. So 120 Followers of Jesus are there. And the spirit of Jesus is poured out among them during a feast of the Jews called the Feast of Pentecost where Jews throughout the Mediterranean region would come to Jerusalem in order to celebrate that feast. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And so here you have 120 believers among all these individuals throughout the Mediterranean region who have come to the Feast of Pentecost. And what do they do? They begin to speak in languages that they were unaware of at the time. They, speak to, they begin to speak in all kinds of different languages that these people who come to the Feast of Pentecost are hearing. And what are they hearing? They're hearing about Jesus, and they're hearing about the kingdom, and they're hearing about the good news of the kingdom, and they're listening to this, and they are dumbstruck by this. And so what do they do? They go back to their areas, their farmlands, and they go back to their towns and their cities, and they begin to explain to the people in those regions 
what they actually saw and what they heard and what you find is that people are actually turning to Jesus through the power of the Spirit and they're giving their lives to Jesus. And the interesting thing is, is that there in Jerusalem, what God did is he brought his people, this little nucleus, back to the center of the earth because Israel and Jerusalem is at the very, as we saw a few weeks ago, the very navel of the earth, the Bible calls it in the original language. He brings them back to the center of the earth and from there the Spirit comes upon them and then what happens is what Jesus promised would happen. When that Spirit comes out, you're going to be my witnesses and the gospel is going to spread beginning in Jerusalem, then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the utter ends of the earth. And so the gospel spreads throughout all the earth, and God's people are rejoicing as we should rejoice today. So what do we find around the earth today? Millions and millions and millions of people who by the grace of God have committed their lives to Jesus Christ, have been transformed by His Spirit, and who then, through their witness, become a light to the nations of the earth. That's good news, and that's a fulfillment of promise. That's the fulfillment of God's promise. I want to leave you with this. You say, what does this have to do with us? All right, my friends, here's, here's I'm going to leave you just two things because we have to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Number one, you and I, and that means every one of us, child, adult, whether you're a member here, whether you're not, whether you're new here, whether you've been here a long time, each and every one of us, are called, according to the word of Jesus, to enter the kingdom of God. That is, to submit to his presence and his rule, to embrace him for the forgiveness of sins through repentance and faith, and then go on as the people of God to bear witness to that Jesus as God uses us to be a light to the nations. Each and every one of us are called to enter that kingdom. If you have entered that kingdom and you belong to Jesus, praise God for that. Praise God for that. And if you have not entered that kingdom and you have never really committed your life to Christ, today is the day to do that. Not tomorrow. You know what? Not next week. You don't know if you're going to live that long. But do it today. And when you see people coming forward to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, think about what they are doing as they are celebrating what Jesus Christ has done for them on the cross in achieving for them, through that sacrifice, the forgiveness of their sins. Draw near to Jesus, okay? Once you have entered the kingdom of God, then God calls you to bear witness to that kingdom to others. And what he calls you to do is participate in his mission to the world. And as I said before, please listen carefully to this. This, this, this whole series of, of, of bringing us to understand the one story of the Bible of God's saving and restorative work in the world and our participation in that is designed for us to see that the mission that we have in participating with God in that restorative work, it is never to be something that, well, it's kind of on the sidelines and it's nice if it happens, so maybe what we should do is we should just form an evangelism committee and make it work. This is the task of all of God's people organically to have the fire of Jesus in them and the prayer that God will use this church to bring his gospel to the nations. And I just want to leave you with this. As we commit to this and as we pray for this, as we pray for this, 
Help us, O Lord, it has to be our prayer, to remember those words that you said to Jesus, that as we do this, as we do this in fulfillment of your call upon us, that we will remember those words of Jesus to the disciples, where I'm going to say that text again, that we began with the service. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, Jesus says to his disciples and to us, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then Jesus ends with these words, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. As we carry out that mission task, there's going to be victory there. And we're going to be seated one day with people of every tribe, nation, and tongue who are going to be praising God and also then standing too before the throne of God and the Lamb, praising Him for eternity. Revelation chapter 7. Beautiful scene. May we take comfort in that. May we give ourselves to that. And let us remember too now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together that Jesus' words are true. My presence goes with you and is here now with his spirit as we celebrate this supper together to be strengthened in our missionary calling. Oh, every time I end, I kind of go, there's so much more to say, but you've heard enough. We have to celebrate the supper together. So please join me briefly in a prayer. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for the story of the Bible. Thank you for giving us the Bible. Thank you, Lord, for living in a free nation where we can without fear, open up our Bibles and see that story of your saving, restoring work through us and even sometimes despite us. It's a beautiful story, Father. We pray that we would own that story for ourselves, that it would embed deeply in each and every one of us and in the ministries of this church. And now, Lord, we pray that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, Lord, we pray through your Spirit you would feed us, O oh God, and you would strengthen us and you would encourage us not only to live lives of faith and obedience before you, but also, Lord, through that, to be the light to the nations around us beginning in this city, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, as we do here, there is always a time where we take a little bit of time to understand exactly what the Lord's Supper is all about. That's important for all of us here who've been part of this church for some time, but there are many occasions where we have guests, and we don't know if these guests really understand what's happening here, what they're going to be observing. So, I want to have you listen now to these words before we partake of the elements together. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the Apostle Paul describes the institution of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In this passage, we are called to celebrate the Lord's Supper for the strengthening of our faith. If we are to do this in a way that pleases God, we must first examine ourselves by considering our sins, humbling ourselves before God and ensuring that we not only believe that our sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ, but we are clothed with his perfect righteousness. Moreover, as an expression of our faith, we must be committed to serving God and living in love with our neighbor. All then who by the grace of God repent of their sins and who desire to live a life of obedience will certainly be received at the table of our Lord. They may also be assured that no sin or weakness with which they struggle will keep God from accepting them in grace and giving them this heavenly food and drink.
So all those who do not repent and who have no desire to live in obedience before God are called, as was noted before the service, to abstain from the table. But please, please, if you don't come forward, do not abstain or keep yourselves from Christ. Take hold of that opportunity today. As we consider the importance of the Lord's Supper, Christ has commanded that we celebrate the Supper in remembrance of Him. So this is not only a meal whereby our faith is strengthened, but it's a meal whereby we remember. We remember what Christ has done for us. In the Lord's Supper, we remember that He came into the world as a substitutionary sacrifice to bear our sin and free us from the wrath of God. Therefore, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are reminded of Christ's deep love for us. Moreover, by his suffering and death, Christ has obtained for us his life-giving spirit. By his spirit, he not only unites us to himself, but also to each other in brotherly love. Finally, Christ has commanded us to celebrate the Lord's Supper until he comes again. In the Lord's Supper, we receive a foretaste of the marriage feast of the Lamb. Therefore, let us rejoice and be glad for the marriage feast of the Lamb is coming.